Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. My name is Fee Wright, and I'll be filling in for Mel. Today on Backstory, I'll be speaking with Elizabeth Flux. Elizabeth is editor-at-large for the Melbourne City of Literature office and is an award-winning author whose fiction and non-fiction has been widely published. She's joining me to discuss her recent non-fiction piece that was published in the autumn edition of Mianjin. Her piece is called Doctored Results, and it details her experiences as a med student and doctor in Australia's medical industry. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me on Triple R today. Thanks for having me. To start things off, I guess it would be helpful, um, perhaps for listeners, for you to provide a quick overview of your article in Mianjin for us. Thanks, Elizabeth. (laughs) Yeah, um, so it looks at my time in medical school, which I ended up not completing, so I never ended up being a doctor. I left early on. So it sort of flicks back and forth between my experiences across different years with a particular focus on the culture of medical school, like the drinking, the the way that mental health was not really discussed, and also how that interacts with how patients are dealt with and how we view mental health in the hospital system and that kind of thing. So it ties my own personal experience as someone who started out really passionate about medicine, who wanted to become a psychiatrist, um, slowly watching that sort of essentially be taken from me by by the realities that I faced, seeing how it actually was and seeing how it would take a toll on me personally. So I ultimately decided to leave. Mm. Um, And the essay goes through the reasoning for that um, because there's not a clear-cut answer why. Um, So I was hoping Mm. that this essay would show there's a lot going on that, medical students and doctors are all facing now. And I've had a surprisingly large response, like a lot of private messages from people. I found heartening in a solidarity way, but deeply depressing in a, in a systemic issues way. Yeah, yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. In the article, you mentioned then in your introduction that you've, you're, you're discussing both the personal and experiences and feelings before heading into the more broader um, and systemic issues surrounding the medical mm. industry. How important was it for you to balance both the personal and the broader problems that are currently occurring in, in medicine right now? I guess I'm very conscious that... Though I can, I know from from hearing stories, from talking to people, to reading articles, that there are broader issues. I wanted to ground this in my story because I can't speak for everyone else. Mm. So I really wanted to show what I saw and how that impacted me, and to see how that might tie into the statistics that are out there representing the larger group of people in medicine, um, doctors, students, like. Mm extrapolating out to those groups from from my own experience. So you just mentioned statistics then, and there are quite a few statistics in your piece, um, uh, some of which that I found personally um, quite alarming and quite shocking. So towards the start, you mentioned that in any given year, 20% of med students will consider or think about committing suicide, and that if those students then do become doctors, that number shifts to one in 10. 
Your article highlights some of the reasons as to why these numbers are, are presenting based on personal experience and, and the pressures that exist. But for listeners, do you think you'd be able to cover the connections you feel between the system and your personal experiences uh, as, a, as a med student? And it's a difficult question to answer. And I'll, I'll confess that I was also shocked by the statistics, but I was also surprised that that went down when you become a doctor. Like I was surprised that there's mm. a drop between students. Not is anywhere near a good number. Like that's not good, but I'm not sure why. But there's a lot of different reasons. Like I think it's because you're confronted with things early on and the medical school tries to do, do their best um, to prepare you for those things. But because the nature of medicine is so competitive, they, they set you up against each other from the very beginning. So like, from the first day you're there, they tell you how lucky you are to be selected to be a medical student, how many people wanted to get in and couldn't. So from the very outset, you feel like you're in a privileged position to be there and to think about not excelling, to not do well, like is a failure of some kind. So there's the academic side of it. But then because you're pushing yourself to do so well all the time, all through medical school, like I personally found that I ended up getting very sleep-deprived very anxious, very depressed. I kind of lived and died on on how, how I did in exams, how the hospital team would respond to me. Like if someone just sort of looked dismissively at me, if I gave the wrong answer, like that would be devastating, which sounds ridiculous now to say, but it was kind of everything there. And you didn't realize that that was abnormal at the time. You just sort of went, okay, well, I'm not living up to expectations. So what can I do to make myself better? You don't see that there's problems with the system. You see it as something in yourself. And all the while around you, truly traumatic things are happening that you don't think of as traumatic because this is the career you're going into. So mm. I remember I went to do CPR for the first time and it was just, we were having induction for the hospital. We got called down to the room to do it. And all of a sudden my hands were on a stranger's bare chest, like beating his heart. And it is so violent and so exhausting and then after that the day went on as normal which is important to like teach doctors that this is part of their day but as a student even though I was intellectually prepared that these things would happen the reality often doesn't line up and it's hard to balance all of these things that each one on their own would be difficult but you're exhausted you're seeing difficult things and you also constantly at least in my case feel like you're failing and you're aware that if you aren't a good doctor, ultimately, your failures will impact on other people. That is quite a lot of um, things, to, different moving parts to reconcile. Um, and you do get the sense of that through the piece. You do recount the CPR incident in in your piece, um, and that was mm. a very very moving moment in that in your article. I'm currently speaking with Elizabeth Flux regarding her piece, Doctored Results, in the autumn edition of Mianjin. Please know that if anything discussed during this interview is distressing you, you can contact Lifeline on 131114 or Switchboard Victoria on 1800 729 You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. One of the most moving accounts during your article, you discuss getting patient notes for the first time for someone who's presented to the emergency department. She tells you that her life was unravelling and that she found herself staring at a drawer of knives in her house. Would you walk 
listeners through what happened next? So essentially I was something like 19 years old and it was my first night in the emergency department because they wanted to let us know what it was, how it was different in the evening as opposed to during the day. So I was um, inducted by a, a very nice, kind doctor who was very helpful, um, who sent me in to interview this patient by myself, which was the first time that I'd ever done that. Usually there's another student, another doctor watching over your shoulder. So I went in and I took her history and we spent... I, I don't know how long, a long time talking through what had brought her to the hospital in terms of what had happened in her life to bring her to this crisis point in the evening where she didn't know what was going to happen if she went home. Like she brought herself to the ED because she was afraid of what she might do to herself. And I noticed that her story kept changing. Like she said she'd be okay, but then she also said she didn't know what would happen. Um, eventually, she said that she really wanted to stay just because she didn't know how things would turn out if she went home. So after we talked, I went and wrote this all up in the patient notes. I did a presentation to the doctor, and she she complimented me on my notes and on how thorough the history was, and then ultimately the patient was discharged, and I didn't see her after our interview. So, I mean, as someone who went into medical school with psychiatry at the forefront of my mind, as the specialty I wanted to do, that was a really confronting moment and one that I've thought about in the in the decade since um, a lot because I don't know how that turned out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that would be a rare occurrence because it's not from lack of caring, it's from lack of facilities. Like there's not enough beds, there's not enough staff, there's just there's no way to to deal with everything as as thoroughly as they might need to be i think from my opinion yeah that's um it's actually it's it's really interesting i have a friend um that i work with um who's now a teacher who was once a doctor and they recounted a very similar anecdote to me about one of the reasons why they decided ultimately to leave medicine and it was pretty much an identical scenario um and so Mm. i'm there seems to be quite a lot of discussion and discourse at the moment about about medicine as an industry because it is ultimately it's a, a caring and empathetic uh, vocation and you were drawn to it um, as a vocation. And um, there's actually a quote in your article um, that's really stayed with me. And um, I'd like to I'd like to quote it now, if I may, if you'll indulge me. Uh, though, though, if you're like me, you probably cringe hearing your own work quoted back at you. But this is for the listeners. It's not for you. It's not for you, Elizabeth. Uh, People on both sides of the medical industry are angry and frustrated, and my head is filled with stories from doctors and patients railing against the structures that prevent them from doing their jobs to their full capacity or receiving the kind of care they need, which is good, kind of because people aren't saying that's just how it is anymore. To create true systemic change requires agitation from many people at all levels of the systems, both top and at the bottom of of power hierarchies. Based on your experiences, what do you think is holding back Australia's medical system from changing if both patients and doctors are wanting these shifts and these changes to occur? I honestly can't put it into a simple answer because I know, like, because oh, well, it's a very simple medical... question, Elizabeth. Yeah. I'm surprised that you I know, right? <laughs> I just picked it right now. Um, but because I am still surrounded by doctors now because all the people that, well, most of the people I went to medical school with are now working in different fields. And I know firsthand that everyone cares. They're doing their best. But I'm not sure. Like, is, it, is it a university problem? Like, do we need to have better training and 
like to equip them better at university? Do we need more doctors? Do we need more hospital spaces? Because there's also the thing where there's too many students for hospital positions, which also creates a different, a whole different series of problems. There's the problems in getting doctors to go to regional areas, and then there's the problems in GP offices where. I'm not sure who's in charge of this, where they try and churn people through in 15-minute appointments. Like, mm. It seems like in different positions of power at different stages of medical training and work, there's just different systemic issues that are so ingrained that it's hard to undo. So like, the solution isn't to train more doctors necessarily if there's not spaces for them. So it's the solution to make more spaces for them and then have more doctors and mm. then the, the culture of it is also a problem and is that going to take a few generations to work its way out like the, the start think starting point i think is to have these conversations so that we can identify where all the different problems are and at least slowly grind away at them because they won't go over, out overnight even if everyone agrees that things are bad i've been speaking with elizabeth flux editor at large for the melbourne city of literature office and respected writer and critic we've been discussing her fascinating piece in Mianjin called Doctored Results. I really encourage um, listeners to pick up a copy of Mianjin to have a read if you've enjoyed this conversation. Elizabeth, I hope you don't mind, but your work is so wonderful and varied. Would you mind if we now just took a bit of a left turn and uh, discussed a totally different piece that you've just recently published with us? Absolutely. It might be nice to have a bit of a, a more pleasant... Yes, a, fresh, a breath of fresh air. We'll, we'll palate cleanse mm. together. I feel like so many writers around Australia just wear these hats of both critical and, and essayist work, but then so slip so smoothly into arts writing as well. And I'm referring currently to your Guardian piece that went live yesterday afternoon at about 3pm, which I discovered when I was doing a bit of research in preparation for our interview. The piece is called She Oak and Sunlight, Women of Impressionism Emerge from the Shadows. Would you mind sharing a little bit about this article? Because it just sounds so, so exciting to me. Yeah, so this is an exhibition that has just opened in NGV Australia, which is in Federation Square in Melbourne. And it centres around Australian Impressionism, which I'll confess I knew barely anything about before I was assigned this, but I did a bunch of reading um, in the lead-up to it, and I, I had the opportunity to speak to two of the curators while at the exhibition itself. And it's just this really fascinating time, and this exhibition is doing a really interesting thing in that they're trying to fill in some gaps in both in both legacy and in what previous, ex previous exhibitions have done because cause they've recently acquired a whole lot of work by women impressionists at the time. And, I mean, the arts has always been a bit of a fraught place to work for different reasons. Like, it's a bit of a volatile industry, mm. I would, would say it's safe to say. Mm. But for women, um, back in the late 1800s when this was all happening, it was thought to even get to work as a painter. And then once... Even if you committed yourself, like there was ones who had supportive families, so they're able to to pursue their dream of painting. Mm. Um, or there's ones who gave up a lot of things to do it. Even when you weren't always afforded the same sort of level of criticism or respect as your male counterparts, and in She Oak and Sunlight, they're bringing a lot of these women's works to the forefront, and you can see just how good they were, and they're kind of getting their moment, which is lovely, I think. It's it's really um, it's funny. When I was reading this piece, I actually grew up in Heidelberg, right near where all of the Heidelberg school artists, the Australian Impressionist artists, were all doing a lot of their, their work. And so I was very... 
I was very familiar with them and very acquainted with their uh, relationship to the Australian landscape for no other reason than um, my family were very into um, doing paint, uh, tapestries of their various paintings. So they're hanging around Amazing. my childhood home. But it's baffling to me that until now, until reading your article, I did not consider or think about the female artists and counterparts that were also working and painting alongside these men at the same time. And you um, you mentioned that, historically speaking, art was often considered a hobby for women and not, say, a living. And one thing that I've noticed from the photographs of the work is that the scale of works are often considerably smaller than the men's work of the same time. Do you think that that scale of size reflects that kind of societal expectation of, of hobby over, over career? This is something I actually um, discussed with the curator, Dr. Angela Hudson, and um, she pointed out to me, actually, it's multifactorial. So I think, yes, you're absolutely correct. But she also pointed to a practical reason that stems from how art was valued. Like, artist materials were expensive, but you see artists paint over canvases that don't sell, which is why you find lost masterpieces from Mm -hmm. time to time. And so because women often would make, like, 10% of what their male counterparts would make, they couldn't invest necessarily in more paint, more canvases, more time, smaller. They literally ended up taking up less space because they couldn't afford to take up more because people didn't respect them enough to buy their larger work. So it's sort of like a a cycle where it just goes around and around and eventually maybe even gets smaller and smaller. And I found that a really fascinating, quite literal demonstration of some of the issues. It was just such a, a great article and I'm just so excited to go see the exhibition. You said it was happening at Fed Square in, in, in Melbourne, yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so NGV Australia there. NGV Australia there. Um, and you've got, I'm sure you've got so many irons in the fires, but do you have any other work coming up that you'd like to let listeners know about before I, before I let you go? Well, I don't, have, I don't know what I can point to that's coming up, but over the weekend I did have an article in the Saturday paper where I interviewed um, the comedy group Auntie Donna about their their recent television show on Netflix and also about how they're hosting the All-Stars Comedy Gala for Melbourne International Comedy Festival, which I think is going to be on TV this week. No one can pigeonhole you, mate. No one can pigeonhole you. (laughs) (laughs) I've been having the joyful experience of speaking with Elizabeth Flux, editor-at-large at the Melbourne City of Literature office, regarding all of her various published work, Mianjin Guardian, Saturday Paper. So you can basically read Elizabeth at all good news agents around the country. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time today, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.